Do you ever find yourself uh, living a life kind of like of tension, uh, sort of stuck sometimes between uh, what you know is the right thing and the right way to live, the right decisions to take, and how you actually find yourself living in various different situations? Stuck between what you know is the right thing to do and how you find yourself uh, living in those situations. Um, or, or are you a bit like me? Do you ever find yourself uh, making mistakes in life and deciding that you're going to learn from those mistakes and you're going to apply the lessons from those mistakes moving forward in the future? And then in a situation when the chips are down or the pressure is on, you revert back to type and the same old mistakes are made. Just me? Okay, it's fine. Um, Francis, uh, the writer Francis Schaeffer, he was a Christian writer and apologist uh, in the sort of 1970s, uh, said that this is, every, this is a problem every human being has, irrespective of where they stand on the faith spectrum, which is that they falter. They're in a place of tension between how they say the world is and how they understand the world is and what actual living in light of that looks like. Let me give you an example. If you are an evolutionary atheist, you, you actually struggle rationally to deal with kind of like... Um, when it comes to why don't we just let whole swathes of the, of the world like die of famine, because actually survival of the fittest. There's, there's a whole philosophical way of looking after other human beings and, other, and, and that comes out of some worldviews that, that actually, when we face it, we don't want to live up to it. Um, so, so Schaefer says that this is all human beings. We falter tension between how we say the world is and what actual living looks like. And then we falter between what we think the right thing to do is and living it out. Um, Christians aren't immune to this. So, so how often have you found yourself in a situation, as say a follower of Jesus, where you've gone, I know this thing is really stressing me out, and I should spend less time thinking and worrying about it, and more time praying about it. Or, or how often have you found yourself going, I know that I am a child of God, and I'm loved by God, and my status is in Jesus, but yet I find myself feeling more secure in myself when everything at home is going all right, when my job is going all right, and when people say I'm doing, I'm doing all right. Um, or how often uh, do you, so something like, you know, going to somewhere like Focus in the summer and having an amazing time at Focus and over the course of a few days realizing, you know, I spent the last 12 months living life in my own strength and I'm not going to do that for the next 12 months. And then you get back to Focus the next year and you go, oh. What about you? Do you find yourself sometimes living in a place of tension between the right thing and how you actually live and how you understand the world, whether it be in the light of Jesus, yes or not, and what that might look like? We are um, in a series we're calling Home, and we're learning to apply the lessons from um, the exile uh, into our post-pandemic world, learning to kind of work out where we are in a post-Christian, post-pandemic world using the lessons from the exile. And we're going to jump um, today, we're going to jump right to after exile, um, and we're going to learn some lessons from after exile has ended. So what happens is after a generation, uh, the people of Israel get back to Jerusalem. They have been longing for this for a generation. It turns out it's not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, the city isn't really that impressive. It's a bit like leaving London and going to live in... Um, uh, you know, going to live in, I'm going to use Shambhali Ray, which is where I grew up in. I know I'm not offending anybody there. Uh, the city is not that impressive. It turns out that the nations around you are still quite powerful and aggressive. And also, interestingly enough, their gods are still quite attractive and persuasive. And so despite this return from exile, um, the people of Israel find themselves facing old temptations. 
which is to turn from trusting and worshipping God to living life in their own strength, but also worshipping other idols, worshipping the other gods. Now, in uh, the time of uh, our Bible writings in around the exile, other gods were very easy to spot. Idols were very easy to spot. They were usually the gods of other nations, and they were usually fashioned out of stone or wood or precious metal, and you could spot them in the corner of a temple or a home. And they had a whole list of rules and regulations that you had to follow. So actually, they were quite easy to spot. Um, in our world, we like to think that we have moved on. We don't put, you know, uh, as, as much. But in the Western world, definitely, you know, we, we don't have, you know, statues in the corners. And we don't have lists and rules and regulations that those statues tell us to follow. So we think we've moved beyond this kind of temptation uh, to, to worship other gods or to, uh, to bow to, to man-made things. But actually what's happened is, is idolatry, the desire to worship the wrong stuff, has just got a little bit more subtle uh, and still gets hold of us. So one writer, David Foster Wallace, who wasn't a Christian and wouldn't have described himself as a Christian, said this in 2005 to a bunch of people who were just about to graduate uh, from a university in the state about idolatry and worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life. There is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or a spiritual type thing to worship, for example, Jesus Christ, um, is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you, you tap into real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you, all, you will always feel ugly. And then when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. And on one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, parables. It is the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping this truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you're doing. That's cheery. But that's Foster Wallace and describing modern-day idolatry, describing the temptation that the people of Israel faced when they went back to Jerusalem. Uh, Tim Keller, who is a pastor and a writer uh, in New York, talk, defines idols like this. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And so Keller would say, as such, anything can become an idol, something that's really good, the love of your family, um, a good job, but also something that's really bad. And what happens is they take over and we, we fill our hearts with them. Uh, we build our identity upon them. We pour our strength into them instead of God.
And so the challenge for the people of God is always, how this side of eternity do we fight the temptation to idolatry, the temptation to worship the wrong stuff? And when they got back from Jerusalem, the people of God came up with a rather simple plan, uh, which is one I want to share with you today. And it's this. Uh, you fight the temptation to worship the wrong things by worshiping God. You fight the temptation to worship the wrong things by worshiping God. I'm now going to spend the rest of my time explaining a very simple sentence to you. <laughs> we are in Psalm 115. It's a post-exilic psalm, probably, um, but it was used in post-exilic worship. So it was used in the worship life of the temple, um, but also it was used specifically uh, to expose the lies of idols and other gods and, and to contrast them with what it is to follow and worship God. So I'm going to read Psalm 115, and then we're going to pull some things out of it. So it's going to come on the screen, uh, and if you've got a, a Bible app or a Bible, um, you might want to keep that open as we go through. So Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong evermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, there are three things uh, about why worship uh, God helps us uh, defeat the temptation to worship idols in our lives. And um, the overarching theme is that when we worship the Lord, we are orientated away from our own hearts and from the stuff of the culture and our world towards God. But there are three things that jumped out of me when I was looking at the psalm this week about what happens and is happening when we worship that helps us do that. Uh, the first one is this, is when we worship God, we actually meet with God. We meet with God. Uh, we come into God's presence. And when we meet with God, our hearts are changed. He fills us with his love. And we, we, we kind of see his beauty and his wonder and how amazing he is. And, and when that happens, when we are with God, the, the luster, the allure of the other stuff of our lives falls away. And if you... If you want to the idol as, it, as you basically realize, actually, I don't need the approval of other people, or I don't need a good job, or I don't need whatever it is, because I have got Jesus. I've got God, and he is better by far. And the psalm opens up with a declaration, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. And the next verses, 2 down to um, 7 and into 8, basically, the psalm sets up idols versus God. Idols are deaf, dumb, and useless. They can't actually do anything for you. God, on the other hand, is portrayed um, as loving, 
and as faithful. Um, he's portrayed as the God who is living and alive. So where idols can't hear you and won't speak to you and won't do anything for or with you, God speaks, God hears, God is loving, and God is faithful. And so the psalm opens up saying, actually, when you worship the Lord, you are meeting with and you are worshiping a living God, not some kind of thing out of stone um, that you created. And it is in that worship that we meet with God. So um, C.S. Lewis, him of the Narnia books, um, um, he said that when he was coming to faith, he really struggled with why, would you, why, why does God need your worship? Uh, and and he, he said, I discovered this. Uh, it is in the process of worship that God communicates his presence to us. Yes, it's not the only way, but for many pe- people, the beauty of the Lord is revealed as we worship him. It's part of what it is to be a human being, to respond to beauty. Have you ever been on a walk and turned a corner and seen a view and you've gone, wow. We're made to admire people who um, love uh, uh, what Arsenal are doing at football at the moment. I don't because they're going to play Liverpool later on. You know, we'll be admiring how they are playing potentially later on. Hopefully as a Liverpool fan, they won't. But, you know, we're made to admire. And I remember um, the first time so I, uh, I went to the National Gallery to see uh, Caravaggio's Rotomaeus. Anybody know the painting? Um, I'd seen pictures of it, and I'd always, I kind of, when I, when I was um, 14 and we did the Renaissance in history, I just got completely captivated by Caravaggio because he's, 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 he, he's brilliant and bonkers. And I remember when I moved to London for university, going and actually seeing that painting. And I, and I was blown away by it. I was blown away by its size and its beauty. And what it communicated. But here's the thing. Um, it's not in the picture. There was, there's a rope. I could only get so close. Um, I couldn't communicate with Caravaggio. You can only stand there and go, well, what was the guy thinking hundreds of years ago? What does the painting say to me? And so as, as amazing as it was, I was standing back from it. I wasn't meeting with it. I was viewing it. God doesn't stand behind a rope. And we stand back from him. And we, God meets us. When we worship God, when we admire him, we're not, it's not from afar. Um, in Jesus, it's, it's with him. It's in his presence. And so when we worship, it's not quite like going and looking at a painting in the National Gallery. It, it's more like time with the most important person in your life. So Wendy and I met 28 years ago last week. I know we must have been about three. That's what you're thinking. Um, we've been married for 24 years. And you, you, thank you. Uh, and now you think at this point uh, that we pretty much know everything that there is to know about one another, and we pretty much would have exhausted everything there is to exhaust out of one another. But, but actually, we haven't. We haven't. Um, and, and the most important thing that we can do uh, in terms of um, growing in our admiration and love for one another is time with one another. Um, when we are together, it's, you know, our love for one another grows. And so that's what happens when we worship. We meet with God. He fills our hearts with love, and the idols and the stuff of this world lose their attractiveness. So firstly, when we worship, we meet with God, and our hearts are changed. But secondly, when we worship, we actually meet um, also with one another. We get drawn closer to one another. Um, so worship is like, um, it's like a team game. And defeating idols is like a team game. Uh, the writer goes on to, in verses 9 through to 11, to list different people who are all worshipping together. Firstly, there's the Israelites. 
And so that's all the people of Israel. There's the house of Aaron. They are the priests, the people who work in the temple. But then verse 11, there's those who fear him. Um, So they are um, anybody who isn't Jewish in nature but has chosen to love and follow God. And they are all together in this act of worship. And they're calling out to one another. They're saying, trust in the Lord. They're reminding one another that he is their help and shield. That actually, as they worship, they are being brought together and their corporate worship is is helping one another to meet with God. Um, They are reminding and remembering together who God is what God has done, um, and how just beautiful and how wonderful he looks like. And as they do that, they get drawn together. Paul says that. um, He talks about us coming together as the temple where God dwells. There were all these stones, and when we come together, something happens. Who, um, Who do you worship with? Who do you worship with? Because when we do, something happens. So um, if you went to Focus this summer, I didn't want to go to Focus. I hadn't been for a few years. The little bit of introverted me wasn't that bothered. Um, and then I got there, and on the first night, there was uh, a meeting of the church leaders where there was some worship and there was some good food. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then on the second night, I went into the big top, and there was about 3,000 people there worshiping the Lord. And something happened when we all worshiped together. God showed up. But it didn't need to just be Focus. I remember this space when... Um, so I'm pointing my glasses at you. James says I shouldn't do that. It means I'm getting aggressive, don't you? <laughs> um, I remember this space when the pandemic, when the restrictions on singing were lifted, and there was about 30 of us gathered in here. I don't know if some of you were there. And I remember when we started worshiping and started singing, I started, I started weeping just because God, you know, just something about that being together and worshiping together that was different from doing it at home on Zoom. And that's part of what it is to be family and to be the people of God, to be brought together, to worship together. It's why Sundays are so important, because when we come together, and why we do it all ages, God shows up, and he has something for each and every single one of our hearts. And the temptation is, when life is going not so well, is to shy away from choosing to worship, um, and to go, oh, I don't want to show up, or I don't want to come. And actually, we need to pursue people who are in that place, because um, a good heart full of worship is like, is like a good virus. We're all, used, we're all used now a couple of years into what a bad virus in our numbers are. But actually, a heart that's really full of worship is like a really good virus with a really bad R number. And so what you need to do is if you're feeling tired or you're feeling worn out or you're feeling full of doubt, um, is, is you need everybody to help you. But you need to show up and you, need, and you need to go where there's people who've basically got hearts full of this worship virus. And so what you need to do is you need to find the people who do that. You know, like, so Tim goes like that, and then somebody, the people who already go like that straight away, stand next to them. You'll either end up doing that yourself <laughs> or thumping them. No. <laughs> no, but you will. If you stand next to someone who's worshiping, it spreads. So we need, so, so we're given one another in worship. So worship draws us close to God, but also draws us close to one another. And in, doing, and in both times, we're orientating ourselves away from this life and these idols towards God. And then the other thing it does is it puts roots down into our hearts around the promises of God. So they go on. Um, verse 12, the Lord remembers us and will bless us. And in the verses that follow, um, the word bless is used five times, and it's used five times of everybody. And what is happening here is the psalmist is contrasting um, the idols who can never deliver <laughs> with God who always delivers on his promises. Hey! <laughs> uh, I don't know if he's on strike at the moment. But... 
But the idols who never deliver with God who always delivers and around the promises of God, um, the, God the God who has spoken in Acts, his promises. And so actually, as we worship, the, the, the stuff that we sing, the, the, the words that we say remind us of who God is, but what he has done. And when we are remembered of what he's done, roots go into our hearts um, that push idols out. Um, if you want to, um, there's a thing in my garden called Alconet, which is driving me mad, and I keep pulling it up. But the best way to get rid of it is to plant in something else that's got, that's, that's got better roots, and that will stop the Alconet growing. And so actually, as we worship and the promises of God fill our hearts, roots go down that push out the roots of the idols. And of course, all of this is possible in the greatest promise of all, which is Jesus. It's in Jesus that we come into God's presence. It's in Jesus that we are brought together to be one people. And Paul says that all of God's promises are yes in who? In Jesus. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus. And so one of the things we do as we worship is we sing songs that remind us of the promises of God. Uh, we share stories that remind us of the promises of God. And, and like they did in a kind of slightly different way, is we tell vision of what God is up to that are linked to the promises of God. And when that happens, to, to live in that kind of sort of place of tension between uh, what you, how you know you should live, whoops, and, um, and what God's love is like and how you actually live, the solution is to worship God. The solution is to pursue his presence in worship. Uh, the solution is to come together with others to worship. And the solution is to be reminded of the promises of God and all that he has done. What about you? What are the idols in your life? Where are the places that you are tempted? And is worship what you do to, to defeat them.